And everybody doing all right this morning? Okay, save your strength. We are uh, participating in a whale call survey this morning. That is a call to the blue whale. Just if you hear other ones during the morning, just know we're just working our way through different types of whales. If you'll open your Bibles, please. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you do not have a copy of God's Word that you can get your eyes on, you're going to want one. So we've got a bunch of blue ones back there. If you slip up your hand, who's um, um, band guys? Do you mind helping us get some Bibles passed out? Oh, here comes also. Thank you. Um, honestly, what I'm going to say to you this morning is so outrageous. It's so glorious, it's so world-changing and jaw-dropping, you're going to have to see it to believe it. You will want a copy of God's Word this morning. Two weeks ago, Rod began our series in the book of Ephesians by declaring the blessings that God has given us in Christ. This amazing list of blessings that are ours in Christ. Last week, Neil preached his way through Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, and he showed us how this prayer links back to these blessings. Neil challenged us with Paul's prayer requests for the readers of his letter. Paul prayed, just like Will just reminded us, Paul wants us, by the Spirit, to know God better, by knowing the hope to which he's called us, by knowing God's inheritance for his people, and by knowing God's power for believers. Paul's concern here is that the readers of his letter, which is that church in Philippians, and it's us. Paul's concern for us is that we might really know these amazing, these powerful, but these really hard to believe blessings. So he asks God to help us understand them. And I'm aware that we need God to help us get through what we're going to get through this morning. But I'm also aware of If, by the Spirit's help, we grasp the truths of this passage and are really grasped by them, it's nothing short of revival, people. It is nothing short of revival. And as I've got the chance to work through some of this passage, sometimes it feels like, I hope you have this experience, this doesn't happen for me as regularly as I would like, but it definitely has happened with this passage. Like reading it, carefully working your way through it, praying over it. It feels like you're rewiring a house with the power still on. Do you know what I mean? Like you're just kind of like, oh, whoa, what? I might have done that wrong. That's, I got to make sh- that switch. We have to, the, the power in this passage is amazing. The blessings that we have in Christ are amazing. Paul prayed that we would know that we have them. And now, in our passage this morning, he's going to tell us the story of how we got him. An amazing story. Now, I want to warn you right off the top that very little of what I'm going to say this morning is going to sound really novel. For people who tend to like zone in, zone out during sermons, this is going to be hard. Because what a lot, if you just kind of like catch little bits of what I'm going to say, you're going to be like, I've heard that before. Time to zone out again. Do, do, do. Really track with me. Really track with me. Because 
what I'm saying is going to be revolutionary. Let me give you an example of how this sort of like basic thing is revolutionary by talking to you about my um, golf game. Um, contrary to popular opinion, I'm not a very good athlete. <laughs> I know that's hard to guess just from the way I preach <laughs> and look, but I'm not really a good athlete. But I have this like um, theory in my head about golf and me that like I am one gizmo away from being like a PGA competitive golfer. I'm like, so what happens when I hit the ball wrong? It's this club. This, this club is terrible, right? This club, I mean, the clubs that they use on TV, they hit the ball. Those clubs make the ball go straight. My club is probably because I have like a, a, a cast um, a cavity back, and what I need is a forged cavity back. That's what I see those guys have. Lisa, I need about $1,500 for what I really would, would really... Oh, what, do you know what it is? It might be the golf ball I'm using. I think it might be the golf ball because my golf ball has like a liquid center and then I've seen these commercials that to really be great, you need like a thermoplastic resin center. That's what you need in the middle. And as soon as I get the right golf ball, then I will be a great golfer. Or I saw, like, like my dad gave me for Christmas, he gave me some different, like, I've been using like wood tees. What was I thinking? <laughs> my dad gave me these like grooved plastic tees, or maybe they're made out of like whalebone or something, but they're going to, it's going to, they're going to, they're made from Tiger Woods baby teeth or something. <laughs> going to be amazing and this is what I need to really be a great golfer but I mean this is what we all do right even in our spiritual lives we always feel like you know what I'm just kind of like one gizmo away from really doing this right with Christ I just need a new I need a new Bible honestly the one I've got it's not it's not really doing it I need like a new uh, oh study study Bible a student study a journaling student study Bible. That's what I really need. That's what I, oh, maybe it's not the gear. Maybe it's the practice. Maybe I got to do one of those like read the Bible in a year programs. If I did that, I just feel like that would be so, that's too fast. Uh, what I need is like Lectio Divina. I got to read like slowly. Oh, I got I to gotta pray the scripture. No, prayer. That's what I really need. I need to I need to pray, I need to journal my prayers, or like a prayer walk would be great. Uh, Maybe I need like um, centering prayer. I have a friend that does that. I'm not even sure what that is, but it sounds amazing. (laughs) And Paul comes to us in this passage lovingly. He comes to our rescue this morning with some bad news. Progress in our Christian walk is not a matter of collecting the right gear or executing the right practices or gathering the right experiences. For my golf game, whenever somebody who actually knows about golf sees me golf, they laugh. And then they say, um, it's your grip. You're holding your, your club wrong. You're, you're holding your club wrong. I'm like, it's my grip? Is that what I need? I need like a non-stick polymer for my club? No, it's, it's where you're, it's how you're actually holding it. That's your problem. And I think there's something, that push just to get back to that fundamental is what I think we need in our Christian lives. It's our grip. 
that needs changing. Progress in our Christian walk comes from a deeper and deeper exploration, learning, leaning, experiencing the good of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not something that we're adding into the gospel. It's not something we have to put this other stuff into it. We need to go deeper. If you think about this, like I know this is true. I'm pretty sure this, if, if you think about what the Lord really has been teaching you in the last couple of months, when I ask this people, this, people this question, like what's the Lord teaching you like here in this last month? What they usually say? Well, it's nothing really like brand new. It's kind of like this thing that he taught me like six years ago, but we're just kind of drilling deeper into it. You know that, you know that feeling? This is how the Christian walk really works. It's not, okay, you've got the gospel. Now let's go on to the, to graduate school in the gospel. No, no, no. The gospel is not the ABCs that you move on from. It's the whole content and we're drilling deeper and deeper into it. And that's what this passage does. Today's passage is the answer to Paul's prayers. It's the path for our growth. It's hope for a hopeless world. It's the clearest presentation of the gospel that I can think of in the New Testament. It's our food for today. Let's stand and read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For, grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father of glory, give us, As Will has already prayed, as Paul prayed for us, I pray again. Give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we can know the hope to which you have called us. So that we can know the riches of your glorious inheritance in your people. That we can know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. We pray this in his name, that name far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, the name above every name, not just in this age, but also in the one to come, the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, the passage today breaks down into three really easy sections. 
three really easy sections. Here they are. I'm just going to give them to you right now. I'm going to give them to you right now. First of all, it's what we were. What we were. Secondly, starting in verse 4, it's what God did. Thirdly, it's why he did it. That's, that's the passage. It's what we were. It's what God did. It's why he did it. All right, let's, let's dive in. If you're ready to dive, say dive. dive. Good, good. What we were. Okay, we've got to know our starting place. You can want to go to Madcap Coffee. You can have a map of Grand Rapids, but if you don't know that you are at 1801 Three Mile Road Northwest, you are lost. Knowing your starting place is such an important part. If you don't know your starting place, you're lost. And no amount of advice or map is going to help you. Here we are. This is our starting place. Verse 1. What were we? We were dead. Okay? We were dead. Now this... This is the strongest term possible. The Greek word for this means dead. Okay? It comes from a Hebrew word meaning dead. All right? Not a lot of linguistic wiggle room there. The world chafes at this notion. It wants to give us a different story which says this. Look, man is reaching towards his potential. Just give him some time. He's evolving. He's getting better. Bad news for you. But good news for mankind in about a million years, we're going to work out all the kinks with some good education, with some good funding, with some good, it's going to get better. What's better? We don't ask questions like that, but that's where we're going. The world just can't face reality. The biblical teaching is realistic. The Bible story is realistic. Our movies aren't realistic. Our music isn't realistic. The stories that they tell us, not advertising, unrealistic. I hope you figured that out. I, I, told, I started telling my boys when they were about three years old, whenever they would see a commercial or walk past something, I was like, by the way, the store is trying to lie to you. The store says, if you have this toy, you will be happy. It's not true. So just know that. The Bible gives us a very realistic help. Why does the world lie to us? Because it's trying to convince us that we're one gizmo away. And by the way, they're selling that gizmo. Ugh. Biblical teaching is radical and comprehensive. We're not like a sick medical patient that needs help. We're a corpse. We're not like a student who needs a lesson, okay? We're a cadaver. We're not an inefficient employee, all right? We are a carcass. We are dead, now, someone might say, well, it looks like you're overstating it because the next verse says that we're walking. Okay, it does say that. <laughs> so we're not just dead. Um, Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to say that our death was a living death. We weren't just dead. It's worse than that. What were we? We were dead. Verse 2, we were lowly slaves. That's what we were. Verse 2 says, in which we once walked, we followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul explains to us that we were enslaved by our environment. No, not the ozone, okay? It's the course of this world. We were enslaved by the outlook of this world, by the mentality of this world. We were controlled by that life and that outlook. 1 John 2.25 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
That doesn't mean it's okay to litter, all right? It doesn't mean, like, go ahead and neglect the environment and bunker up for heaven. That's not what it's talking about. What it means is this. Don't love the sinful outlook, the sinful mentality of life apart from God. That's the world system is trying to do life apart from God. Now, someone might say this. They might say, well, if we were slaves, then we can't really be held responsible for what we did. This is the worst type of slavery. Because this was a slavery that we ratified and embraced and resubscribed to. Every time like there was like a, a, a decision to be made about it, we were in. We loved it. Look, verse 3 says that we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were doing... We were doing exactly what we wanted to do. It was killing us. We loved it. It controlled us. We wanted more. It destroyed us. We loved it. We volunteered for more. We got done sinning early and headed back to our old master. Anything else? Any other ideas? Pretty excited about this sin thing you've got going. We loved it. What were we? We were dead. We were lowly slaves. Third, and finally here, we were under God's wrath. Verse 3 ends, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were on the receiving end of divine judgment. God's wrath is his holy anger against sin. It's not some out of control temper like your dad might have had. It's not some outburst of uncontrolled passion like your boss has in darker moments. This, God's wrath is not a dark part of God. It's not a quirk in his personality that he's trying to get over since his Old Testament phase. Okay? It is a result of his commitment to holiness and to purity. And it results in a terrible judgment. It's because of his omnipresence. Okay? Because God is everywhere, he sees everything. He sees all of the evil in the world. He sees it all. He sees you. He saw that. He's watching in Darfur. He's watching in Syria. He knows he's everywhere. It's a result of his omniscience. He knows the thoughts that we have, why we did that, what was our motive right there. He knows And his holiness calls to account every sin. So our temptation is to view sin, to reduce it down to like, well, it's just, look what I'm, what I'm doing right now, it's only hurting me. Look, it's not really hurting anybody else. Can it really be that big of a deal? Because it's just, it's just between me and me. That is a sinfully selfish viewpoint that misses the relationship that God has with the world. I've never really read a long quote in church before because they always say that when preachers read quotes, people tune out. But John Piper says this so well, I just have to, I have to read what he says. What's, what is sin? Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised. It's, it's the truth of God, not sought. It's the wisdom of God, not esteemed. It's the beauty of God, 
not treasured. It's the goodness of God, not savored. It's the faithfulness of God, not trusted. It's the commandments of God, not obeyed. It's the justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. It's the grace of God, not cherished. It's the presence of God, not prized. It's the person of God, not loved. That's sin, and that's what we did. And we were under God's wrath. That's what we were. We were dead. We were lowly slaves, and we were under God's wrath. And only the person who recognizes this is ready for the good news of the gospel. And I hope you feel this. I hope you feel the failed resolutions that you've made. Been a long time since New Year's was here. Long time for those things to collapse. Doomed decisions, had some decisions that you were banking on, fell apart on you. The constant contradictions in your, in your own heart. Do you know who my worst enemy is? It's me. Do you know who's lied to me the most in the past year? Me. Do you know who's broken the most promises to me in the last year? Me again. Despair by ourselves. Parents, do we let this truth affect our parenting? Or do we just punt back to the world systems? When our kids can't do it, my seven-year-old said to me recently, Daddy, I, I keep making foolish choices. Isn't it so scary when they actually say back the words that you said to them? I keep making foolish choices. What do we do? Do we punt back to the world's way of thinking? Try harder. You can do it. No, 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 no. You're a good boy. Just make the good decision. Really? How to raise a Pharisee. We could, we could write books on this. <laughs> there it is. That's what we tell our kids. Or do we believe it? Do we believe this? The world views Christianity as a path to decency. And that's why your unsaved family members think you're going through a phase right now. Church is going to be good for you. That'll be, that'll be good. It can add some, some morality into you. It'll, that way we can evaluate Christians by how good they are or how nice they are or how harmless they are. what we were. Point two, the good news comes. What God did. What God did. This is verses four through six. And it starts with these, maybe my favorite, my favorite two words in the New Testament. But God. Here's a distinction. Here's a contrast. Here's a change. This is where Christianity breaks away from the pack. Okay, worldly morality is always and. Christianity comes in with the contrast of but God. It doesn't add on. Morality is just interested in manners and politeness, correct behavior with the goal of creating nice people. There's nothing supernatural about nice people. The contrast, but God, has never entered. Decent moral life is just added into normal life. The authentic Christian life 
involves an introduction into a new realm. It's a qualitative break between light and darkness. It's a new category. It's a new dimension. It's a break. It's thinking in a new way. Look, consider Paul's previous section. He's looking down the entire time. He's looking at men. We're dead. He's looking down into a grave. We're lowly slaves. We are under God's wrath. But God, feel this change. It is time to look up. Look. See life. See light. See God. What did God do? Three things in the text. First, he raised us to life. This is verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. A Christian is a transformed follower of Jesus Christ. A transformed follower of Jesus Christ. It's a person who has undergone a categorical change. And this is not the change that we normally think of. It's not the change from drunk to sober. It's not the change from mean to harmless. It's not the change from, definitely not the change from materially poor to financially rich. It's definitely not the change from um, um, physically sick to physically well. It's not the change from difficult life to easy life. Here's the change. It's the change from death to life. It is a change of resurrection. Raised. I have faith to believe that people in this room, even now, are being raised by God's power, even this morning. Hear God's word from later on in Ephesians. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What did God do? He raised us to life. Second, God raised us to rule. This is verse 6. Here's some victory for some Christians this morning. Verse 6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul told us earlier in chapter 1, where is Christ? Look, look in verses 19. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. God has raised Christ far above where? Somebody help me. I know I've been talking at you a long time. Where is Christ? Where has he been raised to? Far above what? Yeah, good. Far above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion. Last week, around the world, was Ascension Sunday. We don't really celebrate that too much as a liturgical calendar way. But the Ascension has a lot of power and hope for you. I hope you feel it this morning. Catch this. You're, you're united with Christ, okay? Christ's resurrection means that you can now, Romans 6, 4, you can now walk in newness of life. But here's the punchline. Here's the punchline. Because you are united to a raised and exalted Christ, you are raised and exalted and seated with him. You don't get it. Because you are united to a raised and exalted Christ, you are raised and exalted and seated with him. Remember those evil powers that enslaved you? Remember that? Remember their authority and their coercion over your life? Remember how that felt? You are seated with Christ far above all rule, far above all authority, 
above all power and all dominion. Do you know what that means? You don't have to obey the evil one anymore. You don't have to. You don't have to. You used to. You used to love it and you used to have to. You don't have to. You are seated with Christ. You are exalted. You can stand. You can battle. You can fight. You can struggle today. Romans 6 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. We're going to have a really great look at this later in our study in Ephesians as we study the armor of the Lord. Listen, one day the fighting is going to be over. Christ's rule and reign will be complete. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelation 22.5 promises us that God's people will need no light or lamp or sun, for God will be our light, and God's people will reign forever and ever. Today, it has begun. You have been raised to life and raised to reign. That's what God did. He raised us to life. He raised us to reign. Third in this passage, he graced us with salvation. Paul here is overflowing. God graced us with salvation. I hope you can sense his enthusiasm. Maybe mine. Sometimes reading Paul is just so overwhelming. Paul's phrase here is, it is by grace that you have been saved. That's, a, that's like a summary statement of what he's already described. God's grace has been the key theme from Ephesians 1. Verse 6 teaches us that God has blessed us with his grace in the beloved. God's salvation means deliverance from that wrath of God. Delivered from God's wrath because of his salvation. It means a reinstatement of God's glory, says Romans 18. Sorry, Romans 8, 18 through 30. I just added two more chapters onto Romans. Look them up later. They're probably great. <laughs> Do you know about this change? Do you know about this contrast? That depends a lot on what you think of those first three verses. Okay? If you can achieve salvation on your own, you don't really need what God did. You don't need that contrast, but if you agree with the Bible, this contrast is the most wonderful thing you've ever heard. Hope for the hopeless. Help for the helpless. Light in darkness. Your life may have been heading along. Next year looks like last year. Good morning, full lunchbox, punch in. Empty lunchbox, punch out, good night, days. At one point, maybe it felt special, but life's disappointments drained that away, and you entered into the dreary monotony of normal life. But God, but God, surprise, astonishment, amazement. This is, (laughs) you'd expect Paul to talk like this. Remember how, like, God showed up for him? Road, Damascus, light, Saul, why, Lord, but God. He can't believe it. He meets the Son of God, Galatians 2.20. He describes him as, who loved me and who gave himself for me. So we were dead and buried. 
but God raised us to life. We were lowly slaves. God raised us to reign, and we were under God's wrath, but God graced us with salvation. And that brings us to the third section of our passage, verses 7 through 10. What we were, what God did, section 3, why God did it. This is verses 7 through 10. Why did God do this? Start in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God did this to demonstrate his bounty and his beauty. He did this to demonstrate his bounty, his, his riches, his, his wealth, his magnificence, and his beauty. Just the, the sheer perfection of his own character. He did this to show. The purpose of salvation is to demonstrate the glory of God. Paul wrote about this earlier, chapter 1, verse 6, that all of this was to the praise of his glorious grace. Verses 12 and 14 of chapter 1 also say this is to the praise of his glory. God's mercy and love began the process of salvation. And now, in the ages to come, God will lavish his mercy on his undeserving people for every age. He's showing off. That's why he's doing it. Now, my kids are going to say it's wrong to show off because I've, I've told them that. It's it's inappropriate for us to show off. It's inappropriate for us to act like we are the most important thing in the universe because that's idolatry. But here's the difference between us and God. He is the most important thing in the universe. He is the most important thing in the universe. He's the most valuable. He's the most worthy And if he didn't act like it, he would be lying. If he didn't act like he was the most important, he would be idolatrous. If he acted like the universe should revolve around you, he would be making you into an idol. He's not going to do that. He has to act like what he is. When he acts according to the truth of who he is, we all flourish. So just get a little glimpse here. What's heaven going to be like? What's heaven going to be like? Here's, here's Paul's explanation right in this passage. God is going to show us the immeasurable riches of his mercy and glory. I don't know what this means for if there's golf or pets or anything. But here's what I... Okay, what can keep us fascinated for eternity? What can keep us fascinated for eternity? Here's the only thing that can work. It has to be this. It has to be the ongoing discovery of the infinite. That's it. That's the only thing that can fascinate us for eternity is the ongoing discovery of the infinite. So here's what I think heaven has a lot of. It's God revealing something to us that we didn't know. Wait, are you serious? That's what that... And then our hearts just overflow in praise. And we're not all the way through that first chorus of our praise song when he's like, okay, here's a new part of my character you haven't even thought of yet. Look at that. And the, all of eternity just erupts in like, 
wait a minute, then that means that when I did that, that was, and then the room erupts in praise again. And then we're almost through that chorus when he's like, okay, take what you thought about this and double it because this is the truth of what I did. And the place goes berserk. Wait a minute. Because I always thought how, how wonderful he is. How great he is. And then he's like, wait. Here's how much I love you. Look, you're getting a lot of it, but there's this part too. Are you kidding me? And we burst again in the song and praise. God shows off for eternity, for our own good, for his glory, and for our good. Not as contradictory things, but as the joy that we were invented to feel. Secondly, what, why did God do it? To demonstrate his bounty and his beauty. Secondly, to destroy our boasting. Salvation is not the result of human initiation. The way we were living caused our problem. Salvation is not the result of human merit. Paul is writing to the Gentile believers here. So his phrase, not by works, that's talking about all human activity. (laughs) How's that? All Jewish works of the law, Romans 3, 21 through 27, don't merit salvation. All human effort, Romans 9, 11 through 12, do not merit God's salvation. Boasting is Described by Paul as putting our confidence in the flesh. No one can claim even the slightest credit for their acceptance with God. So then somebody asks, well, if our activity has nothing to do with our salvation, why does it matter if we do good or evil? Can I just say for the record, I'm really glad the person who's asking these questions isn't actually anybody sitting here. I'm just glad it's kind of like, you know, the unbelief in my own heart that I battle is asking these questions. Well, it brings us to the third reason from our text of why God did it. Not only to demonstrate his bounty and his beauty, not only to destroy our boasting, but to change good works from a failed way to please God into the product of a new creation. Look at this. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Here's a truth for you this morning. Here's an anchor for your soul in difficult times. God's purpose, verse 15 is going to make this clear next week. Neil's preaching it, and I've gotten to take a peek at his notes. Do not miss next week. God's purpose is to create a new humanity, all right? Isaiah 65, 17, Isaiah 66, verse 22, the whole, like, closing cadenza of Isaiah is this amazing hope infusing um, um, overture of the new heavens and the new earth that God is going to bring. It's the most encouraging, breathtaking, awe-inspiring passages in the Old Testament for God's people. He's going to make it again. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. But here, here it is. He's already started. You're not going to believe it. It's you. You are the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he is 
a new creation. Now, like, receive that with what it is. That's not just like, hey, try again. Reboot on you. Control, alt, delete. Paul, new creation. God is making the whole thing over, and he's already started. He's already started, and here is the unbelievable part. It's, it's you. It's you. Why did God make us a new creation? Paul's answer here is good works. If you're looking for one um, good sort of commentary on the book of Ephesians, the one that I would recommend is by a man named Peter O'Brien. He's an Australian um, scholar and a wonderful Christian. And he writes about this. Good works are God's design for his new creation and flow from his gracious salvation as its consequence or fruit. Okay? Because we're God's new creation, there's consequences for how we're supposed to live now. Ethical consequences. God's intention is for us to walk in good deeds. But he hasn't left us to our own devices. He's prepared our good deeds ahead of time. They've been prepared in his mind since before time began. So even the good things that we do after we get saved are a result of God's grace. God's initiating grace began our salvation. God's justifying grace enacted our salvation. God's sustaining grace continues and grows our salvation in the future. Again, the good things that we do after we come to Christ are a result of God's grace to us. So parents, let's go back to this. With your kids, are we, are we parenting them the world's way? You can do it. Try harder is when they fail. And when they do well, you're great. You're amazing. The power's in you. That's Captain Planet. I know I've said that before, but <laughs> I knew you could do it. You're a special little boy. That's, that's great news. Until he fails again in 10 minutes. And suddenly his special is gone. And what, what did you do there? Parents, parents. Matthew. When they do it right, it's because of God's grace to them. When they do it wrong, they need to repent. When they do it right, they need to be thankful to God. Drive them, parents. Drive them to God. On both circumstances, when they fail, not just like, you need to try harder, pull them aside. Listen, you know one of the reasons you're failing? Because your dad's a failure. That's why. I know who your dad is, and, oh, how many parents are with me? You've gone to a parent-teacher conference, and the teacher names your weakness in the child. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Oh, he's so creative. He's got a thousand ideas. Not all of them get done. And you're like, oh, okay. You don't know me that well, all right? Mm. There it is. Why are our kids having such a hard time? One of the reasons, Dad, he's bored with the sin nature. That's your fault. So here, when they do poorly, drive them to the cross. We don't need to be perfect, little mister. <laughs> we don't need to be perfect, little guy. Listen, listen, daughter. 
you don't need to be perfect. Jesus died for stuff like this. Let's, let's repent. Let's go to the cross together right now. When there's a challenge coming up in front of them, don't get, like pep talk them into it. Like, hey, get it done. Go get it done. No, listen, let's, let's pray together right now. Let's ask God to help us. And then when the student does well, when your kid does something well, don't say like, oh, it's you. You are the man. That's what Nathan said to David. Not a good example. I'll let that one go through. Thank you, God. Here's the reason why I obeyed you. Here's the reason why I did well right now. God helped you. God helped you. Let's, let's turn all of our kids, the permissive parent, I read this, I think this is um, Ray Ortland said it, the permissive parent allows their kids to play in a minefield. The legalistic parent chases their kids into a minefield. The Christian parent, the gospel parent, leads their child through the minefield. In conclusion, I tried to think about what applications we could have. What, or how are we supposed to live? What are we supposed to do because of these things? Let's just come up with some really practical action steps. And I just think it's foolishness to try to do that from this text. Here's what I want us to do instead. I want us to respond. Okay? Think of how, um, here's my analogy for it. Think of how laughter works. You know, you've, um, laughter is a result of recognizing that something is funny. Okay? So you never had to go to a class to learn how to laugh. You never did like exercises in like diaphragmic breathing for, for laughter. It's just a result of recognizing that something's funny. You, that's what happens. Worship is a result of recognizing that something's awesome. So why don't we love God more than we do? It's because we don't recognize the greatness of his love for us. We don't see the greatness of his power that is at work in his people. We don't love him like we should because we don't see it. We don't recognize it. So we don't respond. Why don't we mourn lost people like we should? It's because we don't realize the truth about lost people. We don't recognize them. So we're just irritated by them. We're annoyed by them. We're amused by them. We have to see them as they are, like the Bible describes them. They're following the course of this world. They're ruled by the prince of the earth. They're caught, trapped in the passions of their flesh. They're caught in the desires of their bodies and of their minds. They're under the wrath of God. So our evangelism shouldn't be like these man-made attempts to logically persuade them or to bully them towards morality or towards church attendance. They should be God-dependent prayers for revival. They would be God-centered, spirit-filled, earnest conversations with unbelieving people that ultimately have to trust God for it. Why don't we worship like we should? It's because we don't realize what sin is. We don't realize what it's done to us. We don't realize 
where we were. We don't recognize what God has done. And we don't fully recognize why he has done it. When you get glimpses into who we were, into what he's done, into why he did it, let that recognition fire our hearts to worship him. Let's pray. Our God, your word tells us that spiritual things are not understandable to people who don't have your spirit. So all I can do is pray this morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Help the the truths that, that we've heard and seen in your word this morning, that we've heard from you, Jesus. Your sheep hear your voice. Catch those in our heart. God, I pray that you would protect this from being um, um, scattered seed that is just eaten by, taken away by the evil one or just falling on hard places. God, let these truths land. Find in our hearts good soil that will grow up. God, would the words of these songs that we're about to sing, would you help us just push right through the music, right through the lyric even, and rejoice in the truth of what you've done why you've done it, who you are this morning. We love you. We need you. In your name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.